Hey, everybody. Another episode of THD Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, with us, as always, we have uh, Mr. Simon Weston calling in from Sendai, Japan. Hey, Simon, how are you today? Very good. Thank you, Dave. And also joining us, special guest Ryan Cordell from Valencell, based in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Dave. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So, so Valencell uh, is kind of an innovator in biometric sensors for wearables and hearables and uh, these kind of devices. Uh, would you mind just telling us a bit about the background of the company and where you guys come from? Yeah. Yeah, happy to. So um, uh, just at a very high level, uh, Valencell makes the biometric sensor technology that goes into wearable devices of all kinds, including uh, hearables of all kinds of different varieties. And I'll show you a little bit about those here. Um, that should be coming across now. Um, it, I thought I'd show a couple of slides just to, to provide some context around kind of who we are, what we do, how we do it. And then um, that can frame up the discussion if that's okay, guys. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, hopefully you can see those. Yep, coming in. Yep, cool. So um, real quick, we, um, we at Valence, as I mentioned, make the, the biometric sensor technology. So this is the, the technology in wearable devices, and in this case, hearable devices, that measure biometrics like heart rate and heart rate variability, uh, SpO2 or blood oxygenation, cardiac efficiency. We can even do blood pressure now in these uh, sensor modules that we put into a variety of different devices. Some of the hearables you can see here on the screen uh, from a pretty broad range of different hearables makers, some very large, some also small and mid-sized companies as well. Um, in fact, we just had a customer launch a Kickstarter, uh, a startup company launch a Kickstarter this week that's doing extremely well. Uh, that's a hearable device focused on uh, sleep technology. It's an extremely small uh, set of earbuds that even when you're sleeping on your side, doesn't, um, uh, doesn't cause any pain or discomfort and uh, feeds in white noise or audiobooks or music or whatever you want it to. Uh, interesting uh, use case there. And of course, it's using biometrics to, to quantify the quality of sleep. So, wow. interesting. Um, so yeah, that's, um, that's a company called Cocoon, by the way, really, really interesting technology. Um, but so um, what's interesting about this is um, the, um, the technology that's going into these wearable devices at a, at a high level, there's this convergence going on of consumer wearable devices and medical devices, health and medical devices. And what's going on at the ear is really kind of a microcosm of this macro level trend. Um, you look at all of the uh, all of the latest announcements from the consumer wearables and hearables brands, and they're all moving towards becoming personal health devices, if not outright medical devices. Uh, and then on the flip side, the health and medical companies, that's a broad umbrella term, but that includes med device companies, pharma companies, insurance companies, uh, a variety of different categories of companies under that health and medical umbrella they're now making devices that are intended to be worn outside of a medical facility, which until just a few years ago was not the case. So particularly the med device companies were laser focused on uh, devices intended to be used in a medical facility. Now those are moving outside of the medical facility as 
um, as this convergence goes on between these uh, consumer wearables and, and health and medical devices. Okay. And so, um, not not to sidetrack, but it, I find oh, it it's it not it's it's quite interesting that on on the left of the the screen we see um, the consumer stuff, and a lot of these people are very data focused companies. But yeah. also on the right, the insurance and medical companies would also be very data focused. And Absolutely. to me, the concept of having a wearable that creates a larger data set is so much more valuable than going to the doctor once a month to check these things. Do you find that that kind of uh, you know interest from both sides of things wanting to expand the data set to know better what their the the user's uh, health situation is? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and what's um, what's interesting is this is there's a there's another uh, broad level trend going on in terms of of medical care and healthcare delivery moving outside of the four walls of a of the healthcare organization, moving into the home, moving into people's daily lives, and wearables and hearables are a big part of that. And um, and of course, the data that those devices produce uh, help people understand how their body's responding to whatever they're doing, whether it's sitting on a couch or running a marathon or maybe managing a disease of some kind, it's um, all of that data feeds into, and this is one of the, one of the challenges and the opportunities uh, in the marketplace right now is, is taking all of that data coming in from a variety of different sources, including wearables and hearable devices, but also home health devices and uh, food diaries and medical records, pulling all of that into a, a user interface and a user experience that helps surface that information in a way that's, that's actionable, but for an individual to say, okay, here, your personal baseline looks like this based on all of this data we're getting from your earbuds and your smartwatch and the blood work you just got at the doctor's office, all of those kinds of things. And then um, you only access the, the healthcare delivery system when there's a deviation from your personal baseline. Yeah. And we're not there yet. There's a long way to go to, to really bring that to fruition. But that's very clearly where it's going. And you can see early signs of it uh, in the marketplace today um, with uh, a, a, one, of the, one of the recent um, healthcare mergers with Teladoc and Lavongo has gotten a lot of attention recently. And a lot of that is, is yeah. because of the consumer-oriented approach from a user experience and a patient experience standpoint that they bring, uh, as well as collecting data from a variety of different devices to help um, inform not just the caregivers, but also the individuals and helping them take more control uh, over their, their health and well-being and, and ultimately help them live longer, healthier lives. And what, uh, what um, on this uh, this convergence going on, the interesting thing I, I, I touched on briefly earlier that what's going on at the ear is is really um, a leading edge microcosm of this broader convergence. And you've got companies uh, on the left hand side of this and in the consumer side that are, um, as I mentioned, adding personal health capabilities to these devices and and in particular their hearable devices and adding things like biometric sensors to be able to um, see things uh, uh, like heart rate and blood pressure and other capabilities. On the other side, you've got the, the hearing aid and hearing augmentation companies that are adding capabilities to their devices that 
were historically considered more wearable functionality. So they're adding accelerometers, they're adding biometric sensors, they're adding voice assistant capabilities to the hearing aids. And of course that population, particularly from a biometric sensor standpoint, that population has uh, a, a, a tremendous amount of comorbidities associated with hearing loss that um, make the biometric sensing in particular a, a valuable insight into how that person, uh, how that person's body is responding to what they're doing. So um, some of those comorbidities, there's cardiovascular disease, dementia, um, fall risk, of course, is a, is a big factor in, in that population. So it's, it's interesting to see um, you don't really think about hearing aids and innovation uh, in the same sentence all that often, but right. there's actually some really, really interesting things uh, and um, high level innovation going on in, um, in that sector at the same time that the, the consumer, um, uh, consumer brands and consumer hearables companies are, are moving towards adding hearing augmentation capabilities in addition to the, the quote unquote wearable capabilities. Yeah, I think uh, with, with the, the hearing loss or hearing aid community, there's something like a seven-year lag between people actually experience hear loss until they actually react. And I think yep. one of the real benefits of the, the companies on the left is a pair of AirPods that can do some hearing assist makes it, you know, quote-unquote cool to have yep. uh, something in your ear that doesn't stigmatize you as ha having hearing loss. That is, it's really funny you say that because that's a great um, transition into this. I didn't realize there was a build in this, but one of the, the one of the things I wanted to, to talk about a little bit was, and in the bottom right-hand corner, you see the social stigma is gone from wearing things in your ears for long periods of time throughout the day, even when you want to interact with other people that, that may be uh, right in front of you. So, um, uh, that's one of the things that's really, um, that helping this, uh, this growth in hearable devices. And just as a side note, if you look at the latest data from IDC and Gartner and some of the other industry analysts, if you look at the, the, the wearable sector as a whole, including hearable devices, uh, the hearables are now driving that market. It's that hearables are about 60% of the unit volume in the overall wearables market and that's uh, expected as of this year and that percentage is, is expected to grow uh, over the course of the next five years. So and, and these large trends that are converging around hearables are uh, a big reason behind that. So obviously mobile everybody's got a supercomputer in their pocket and that supercomputer no longer has an audio jack, most of them don't. Um, and so that's, uh, that's uh, a big driver for hearables. And I thought it was really interesting that uh, in Apple's announcement this week of the new iPhones, that they're not even including a set of earbuds with the phones anymore. So that's only going to add to the, um, uh, the, the unit volume drivers around hearables. If someone doesn't already have a set of earbuds, now they're not going to get one with the phone. Yeah, I think somebody estimated 250 million units uh, missing from the market that need to be supplanted by an alternate device now. Exactly. Exactly. So um, voice assistance obviously is a big, um, is a big driver behind this now where um, we're just being able to um, say a trigger word or maybe touch, touch the hearable that brings, that brings all of the capabilities of the mobile device that those hearables are connected to 
directly into those earbuds now with the, the voice assistant capability. Um, streaming video obviously is everywhere today and particularly in social media as, a, as uh, most of the social media platforms now are much more video than they are, than they are written text or even uh, images. And so that's, that trend is only going to continue, but obviously you need to be able to hear the video that, that you're seeing. And, um, and that's, uh, that's certainly a driver around hearables as well. Uh, interactive gaming is also driving this in terms of being able to, um, to not just play the games uh, online, but also do real-time interactivity with uh, the, your team or other players in the game. Um, and you're starting to see um, these gaming platforms also becoming um, uh, social networks in a way where um, the uh, Epic Games, the, the maker of Fortnite, bought recently, um, I think it was a company, House Party, that, that did the, um, the collaborative um, uh, the, the video chat, um, company right. struggling for the words there. Um, but it was, it's more of a social, uh, video chat platform that they're now integrating into the Epic games platform. Um, are, and then of course, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Just, just curious. Are you seeing any traction in interactive gaming? I kind of thought that maybe the shoot 'em up games might be a little more interesting if you could see the the blood pressure level of your opponent yeah. or something like this? Is there any traction? Yeah, you know, this, we expected more traction, frankly, than we have seen. There's some, um, there's some in, um, particularly in, there's, um, there's a whole genre of games that are like uh, horror movies and scary, um, uh, scary gaming, essentially. And so part of the, uh, part of the gaming is you, as your heart rate starts to increase, it, opens up new things or uh, scarier things come, come at you. And then as your heart rate lowers, uh, you, it, it opens up, it, those things go away and you get new capabilities and those kinds of things. So it's really uh, integrating that real-time biometric feed into uh, the gameplay directly. Um, the other interesting thing here, and I don't have it pointed out specifically, it's sort of a mix of this interactive gaming and the, the telehealth area, which is um, we're seeing a lot of interest and a lot of uh, attraction in, um, you know, there, there's uh, VR and AR applications are really taking off in healthcare and healthcare delivery in particular, things like stress management and pain management and other areas like that. And you're seeing solutions start to come into the market that use the, a VR or AR headset in combination with a biometric sensor to be able to see how that individual is responding to uh, those visual um, applications mm -hmm. and adjusting uh, the, the visual experience accordingly based on the real-time biometric feed. And they're seeing some really profound um, uh, results from this, and particularly in the pain management area where one of the customers that we work with, they have shown through clinical studies that they can, in session, while the person has the, the VR headset on, they can reduce pain by 50 to 60%, which is on par with pharmaceuticals and opioids. Um, and even after they take the headset off for hours, sometimes even longer, um, that the pain is reduced on the order of 20 to 30%, all with no pharmaceuticals, no opioids. Um, so um, if there's... There's a lot of interesting things going on there that 
you wouldn't necessarily think of as uh, uh, in the gaming realm, but they're using gaming technology uh, to in the healthcare space to um, to be able to help people avoid the use of pharmaceuticals and and still manage their pain in an effective way. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. So um, th there's uh, several others here. Telehealth, obviously, particularly in the pandemic environment, has really taken off, and um, and we're starting to see some initial applications that pull in hearables, especially with biometric sensors. If you can imagine, most most telehealth right now is just talking to your clinician or talking to your doctor over video chat, like we are. Yeah. Um, but if um, if you could have a, a hearable with a biometric sensor in your ear while you're talking to that physician or that that caregiver and they can see the uh, historical data from that device, uh, how you're how that is changing over time, not just at that point in time when you happen to be talking to your doctor. That's um, that's a really powerful addition to uh, the telehealth uh, uh, patient experience and, and also ultimately helping, um, helping address whatever the, the issue is that they're seeing a, a care provider about. Yeah. No, no. Like we talked, I mentioned earlier about the, the breadth of the data is, is more yeah. expansive with having a hearable that they would wear for, you know, six to 12 hours a day. It gives the physician a lot larger data set and therefore the diagnosis is it become more accurate um, because of that, because what I, what I want to talk about is the comparison between maybe the accuracy of the devices in the hospital is greater, but yeah. the ability to have a larger data set produces a more accurate result for the physician. Is that kind of yeah. the case? Yeah, that, that's spot on. It, it's, um, it, it's looking at, and there, there's, um, there's little um, uh, peer-reviewed clinical studies about this that are published at this point, but those studies are going on now. Uh, Cause to your point, there's, there's a balance between, and I, I heard someone describe it the other day as today, the, the environment uh, in, um, in, in healthcare is, is more high acuity, but low frequency, meaning you have the best technology, the best devices in those healthcare facilities but you go see your doctor once, maybe twice a year, if that, and yeah. uh, unless you've got a chronic disease or something, you're uh, an issue you're trying to manage. So moving from that high acuity, low frequency to high frequency, lower acuity, where, yeah, the sensors in these in these devices may not be exactly as accurate as a as a uh, medical device that you'll find in a healthcare facility, but that longitudinal view of that data is accurate enough to see it when there's a deviation from that trend. And then that prompts you to perhaps go get a, a more high acuity reading for uh, through a medical device that you, um, that you get in from your doctor or your, your healthcare facility. Yeah. And I think that if you think about how the, the user experience that, um, that Apple has initiated with the Apple Watch around the, the ECG, where or in the the, the um, arrhythmia and and atrial fib detection, where mm -hmm. the PPG sensor, the the same type of sensors that we put into these devices, is looking for irregular heart rhythms, and it is not quite as accurate as an ECG. It's very close, but not quite as accurate. But the benefit is it's monitoring twenty four by seven, so it prompts the the user to say, "Hey, we've seen something that looks." 
like an irregular heart rhythm, you should take an ECG. And now they've got the ECG on the watch, but you, then you can also go get an ECG reading from your doctor and healthcare facility. And I think you're going to start to see that, um, that uh, use case play out a lot more where the, the hearable device or the wearable device is going to uh, be monitoring 24 by 7 uh, in maybe a, a lower acuity but much higher frequency and then it'll trigger alerts to, to perhaps go uh, investigate further. Yeah, and it's also just the lighter side is uh, people all, all of a sudden start behaving a few days before their doctor visit. So then it skews, it <laughs> yeah. skews the results even further. And uh, I have done a project previously building ECG machines for rental for hospital with oh, uh, yeah. the little stickers you put on your chest and you wear it for several days to get a data set. But it's quite cumbersome versus right. a hearable or a, or a wrist-based wearable. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, that's um, also probably a nice transition into this next um, slide that if you think about, um, uh, and this hasn't been fully implemented today in any one device, but we like to talk about this day in the life with a biometric hearable starting um, up here in the upper left-hand corner where you wake up, pop in an earbud, uh, maybe listen to a podcast or listen to the news or something um, uh, while you're while you're getting ready for the day, and you may be able to ask your device what your schedule looks like, those kinds of things. And in the background, the the hearable is collecting biometric data on how you slept and what your recovery looks like and what your uh, what your current heart rate and blood pressure are, those types of things, and then. Um, and then you um, start the commute to work and, um, and the, the, uh, it's still collecting biometric data in the background, but uh, it also knows in combination with the mobile device that um, certain uh, routes to work may be more stressful than others and so routes you in a certain direction uh, accordingly. Uh, during, the wor uh, uh, during the work day, um, notices when you might be stressed, prompts you for a relaxation session, again, through, uh, through the audio prompts. And, um, and then maybe after lunch, it notices you've, uh, you've got uh, a little bit of a food coma going on and you may want to go grab a cup of coffee or grab a tea, whatever it might be. Um, and then uh, towards the end of the day, getting ready for an exercise session of some kind. I'm still with the earbuds in, even during the exercise session. You've got that. Um, you've got the the biometric readings uh, maintained during exercise, and um, can of course uh, prompt you to uh, either increase or decrease those levels of exercise based on the the feedback that it's gathered throughout the day, not just during that session. Uh, and then, of course, towards the end of the day, sort of a wind down, um, uh, wind down protocol of, hey, here's the summary of the day. And based on how you did today, here's a relaxation protocol or uh, here's your favorite go to sleep music, whatever it might be. And then you start to collect this data over time, day after day, week after week, month after month. It starts to present a pretty powerful picture of that individual's health and wellness, but then also how they can improve in different areas. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, I remember using Garmin chest belts in the past for, for, for marathon training. And uh, it just, it really, 
you could really see your heart rate fluctuate based on what you did the night before. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, and, and it's just, you know, real good body feedback and just extending that beyond just when you're running to every other activity is, is, is really interesting and, yeah, and valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and sleep is starting to get a lot more attention these days. We talked about it um, at the top of the discussion here, but it is, uh, and I'm sure you noticed it's, it's, it's amazing how um, a good night's sleep will help in your uh, daily activities and, and, and exercise sessions in particular, but also the reverse of that. If, if your sleep is bad, you're, you're going to struggle the next day. And that's um, where, where these things need to get to. They're not, certainly not there yet, but less of uh, telling you the next day that you had a bad night's sleep. Most people know that. Um, they may not be able to quantify it without a device like this, but they know that they didn't sleep well. What's more interesting is to be able to tell someone in advance, Hey, you're on track for a bad night's sleep. Maybe, you know, somewhere in this, um, in this time frame in the day, Hey, you should think about doing this, this, and this, because based on the patterns we've seen, you are, you're on track for a bad night's sleep. That's where it gets oh. really powerful to get into that predictive mode of uh, providing guidance in advance of something bad happening. And you can apply that to not just sleep, uh, but also in terms of disease progression or overall health and wellness. Again, back to that personal baseline, when you start to see deviations from that baseline, then um, then you you have the, the data to act on to be able to avoid some of those uh, bad outcomes before it's, before it's too late. Hmm. Interesting. All right, what, what do we have next? So um, I thought I, for um, some of the listeners or viewers who may not be all that familiar with uh, this sensor technology, I wanted to, to, show, um, to show a little bit about how it works. So these PPG sensors, or, or what the, it, PPG is short for photoplethysmography. Nobody wants to say or spell <laughs> photoplethysmography, so we shorten it to PPG. And so it's, it's, um, quite, it's, quite, it's quite incredible that you can actually pronounce it so well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I've been doing this for a while. So All right, uh, cool. it's um, uh, the easy way to think about it. If you're not familiar with the technology it is um, the green blinking lights on the back of a smartwatch or a fitness band. Um, those uh, PPG sensors are by far the most uh, common uh, biometric sensor modality in wearable and hearable devices today. And uh, mainly because um, they they can fit in a variety of different devices. And you can also get a wide variety of biometric signals off of that one single sensor technology. So um, being able to get heart rate and heart rate variability and blood pressure and pulse ox or blood oxygenation and cardiac efficiency and there's, there's a pretty long list of things you can get off of a PPG sensor, whereas um, something like an ECG, it is, it's very good at measuring heart rate and heart rate variability, and that's about it. And, and so you're not going to be able to, um, you're not going to be able to get that long list of, of um, more extensive biometrics off of um, other single sensor modalities. So that's a big reason behind it. Um, but just to to come to a little bit about how it works, what those lights are doing are shining light into your body and measuring how much of that light is reflected back based on blood flow. Mm -hmm. And from that, 
you can get um, a variety of different uh, biometrics that I just mentioned through taking that raw data, doing a bunch of signal processing, and then outputting um, those, those processed biometrics, the heart rate, the heart rate variability, those, those types of things. And, and effectively what this is doing is looking at the different absorption patterns of that light because, and it's looking at the, the capillary bed just below the surface of your skin. You're not looking at arterial blood flow or uh, anything deeper than that. It, it's really just below the surface of the skin. That's why what you see here is um, the, uh, the blood vessels or the, the um, uh, capillary bed right below the mm -hmm. epidermis. That is because those, that area of the body um, uh, it blows up like a balloon every time the heart beats. And so when the light shines in, when your heart beats, those capillaries expand, they absorb more light. When your heart is not beating, they contract and the, the devices absorb, or excuse me, the, the capillary beds absorb less light. So the, the difference between those different absorption patterns is what we're looking for in uh, getting these different biometric signals. Certainly wow. with heart rate and heart rate variability, there's different, there's nuances to look at things like uh, blood oxygenation and blood pressure and those kinds of things. But um, at a very high level, that's, uh, that's effectively what these sensors are doing. And what's interesting is it's um, not all body locations are created equal, as we like to say, it, um, as it relates to the sensor technology, because um, if you think about how this is working and people love to wear things on their wrist, and that's where a lot of these wearable devices um, are, are uh, at least in terms of the unit volume in the market, it's where a lot of them are, more of them are moving to the ear, as I mentioned earlier. But the wrist is actually a pretty terrible place to measure biometrics with this type of sensor technology. Because if you think about the physiology of the wrist, there's, and, and alongside the, the how this methodology is working is shining light into your body, that light scatters significantly just by default in shining light into human tissue. But then in your wrist, you've got bone, you've got muscle, you've got tendon, you've got a lot of local motion, even though I'm not moving, I'm, my hands and my wrists are moving because I like to talk with my hands. And so it, um, it, that all of those things uh, make it much more difficult to find an accurate signal amongst all of that noise. Um, whereas the ear is, uh, ear and the forehead um, are really good places to measure biometrics uh, with this sensor technology because it's sort of the opposite end of the physiological spectrum where um, the ear is essentially just cartilage and blood vessels, right? And the capillary beds. Um, and even when your body is moving, typically your ears are not moving. So um, it allows you to get a, a much, much cleaner signal off of the ear than you can on the wrist or the arm or certainly in the lower extremities. And, um, and there are just there are use cases because of that clean signal, um, the ear enables other capabilities that the wrist and other body locations just can't do. So things like um, measuring uh, blood pressure and pulse ox, even though there's some wrist devices that um, claim to measure pulse ox, it's the accuracy is highly questionable. Um, and then you can also um, combine other sensor modalities in addition to a PPG sensor 
to get more um, uh, vital sign data. So the ear is a great place to measure um, body temperature and truly measure core body temperature um, in, through the tympanic membrane uh, in the ear. And obviously if you've got uh, an ear-based device, that's an option if you wanna add that capability. And so if you think about um, all of the vital signs that you get measured in your doctor's office, in one single device, in an earbud, you can get heart rate, heart rate variability, blood oxygenation, blood pressure, and core body temperature, all in one single device in one body location. So it's, um, it, it's these are, this is another one of the things that's driving people to, to add biometrics to uh, hearable devices and other, uh, other devices in the ear. So, um, uh, thought that would be a, a useful discussion just to uh, geek out a little bit on the on how the technology works. Right. And, no, it's, uh, um, yeah, it's definitely interesting. Been. Definitely interesting uh, that the ear is the optimum place uh, in the marketplace. Do you find that uh, a lot of people like the wrist just because it's the incumbent? It's kind of the original leader, or the chest is so the the ear is a little bit lagging in implementation because of the you know, the Garmin chest belts and, and, and the yeah. Garmin watches. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, um, and so people like to wear things on their wrist. And so the, and they're, that's a, that's a well-known um, device and form factor and, and people understand how that works and what it can do. And, and then, so it's, it's a little bit, it's, it has lagged a bit in the ear just to, to um, get people to understand that, two things. One is you can actually do all of this thing, all of those things I just talked about in the ear. Uh, but then also that you don't have to wear that, uh, wear something in your ear 24 uh, seven in order to get the kind of data you need, because you can get uh, higher acuity data at the ear. If you just get a few measurements throughout the course of the day, say, while while you're doing, taking a phone call or while you're uh, listening to music or listening to a podcast or in your commute, something along those lines, that, um, that uh, gives you the, um, enough data, uh, enough of that picture, if you will, and especially if you look at this longitudinally over weeks and months, um, you don't necessarily have to have that 24 by 7 um, tracking going on with that, um, uh, with the with the hearable device, you don't have to leave it in your ear unless you, unless you want to or need to. In the case of a uh, of a hearing aid or hearing augmentation device. Okay. Now, is there any kind of impact since we're kind of audio focused? Is there any kind of impact uh, related to the the audio path when you start adding these sensors to the device? Yeah, so um, so there is not um, in uh, the sensor technology that that we provide to hearable makers. We actually recommend that the the sensor sit here in the bottom of the concha, not actually in the ear canal. It can work in the ear canal if you want to, but that's typically where uh, a lot of the audio components are going. And right. so um, so it, the this is actually the, the bottom of the concha is actually a, a better place from a biometric standpoint to to measure than, um, than some other parts of the ear. So, um, but it also happens that that stays out of the way for the most part of, uh, the audio components as well. So, um, so it benefits, uh, 
in a couple ways in that regard. Okay. And and I believe mind, uh, Ryan, I just want to uh, just want to run through a couple of uh, technical points uh, yeah. uh, just to get a feel for it. What size of sensor are we talking about? What's uh, what is the uh, you know X Y Z dimensions? Yeah, so it is. I should know this off of the top of my head. Uh, we're talking a few millimeters. Uh, da, da, da. So our latest um, uh, hearable sensor is uh, about six by four by three and a half millimeters. Okay. okay. And, um, and in fact, I can, so this is a reference design of one of our, uh, that, that we provide to prospective customers who are looking at integrating the sensor. And so you can see it there. I see, yep. Yep, so very small. Uh, does it need to be uh, uh, soft mounted, like spring mounted, or is it uh, fixed hard onto the housing? No, it's it's fixed onto uh, onto the, the the board of the device that it's embedded into. Uh, so if it touches the skin surface, or there's a bit of a gap or an angle, it, it can tolerate those type of variations. Yeah. So uh, and a lot of that depends on the the, the design of the device. Um, it's, uh, it's preferred to have direct contact with the skin or at least the lens of, you saw the lens there, yeah. um, the, the lens of the, the sensor have direct contact with the, the skin in the ear. It will tolerate, uh, some gap between the skin and the sensor itself. The, the bigger issue there is, is more of the coupling with the skin. So as long as there is, uh, as long as that earbud is uh, solid and stable within the ear to where it is, it's tightly coupled with the skin. So when the, when the body is moving, the sensor and skin are moving in unison, uh, then it, it can tolerate uh, uh, some, uh, some gap between the skin and the sensor. Okay, so that sensor, does that include any processing? Uh, you, you supply a voltage and you get an analog signal or digital data, what to... Yeah. So um, where so we the the sensor package includes uh, all the emitter, the detector, the lensing, um, and then also the accelerometer as well as an MCU that houses the the firmware and the algorithms that process the data. So what happens is that uh, the host processor of the device that it's embedded into calls uh, our API off the off of our MCU. Usually over uh, serial port, I squared C is most common. Um, and then so just calls for the processed metrics, heart rate, heart rate variability, whatever, uh, whatever metrics that the device is looking for on a, the, the, those metrics are available on a second by second basis. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be called every second, but um, if you want it every second, it's available. Okay, so you, your host process is typically gonna be a Bluetooth chip. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so you read out these numbers. That's right. And uh, uh, there's a fixed format that those numbers are going to come to you in. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, um, we feed that data out over the BLE heart rate profile. So um, all of that data is structured in that, in that standardized BLE heart rate profile. What sort of power consumption are we talking about? Yeah. So in that sensor, I just showed you um, in full, uh, full power mode, uh, where we're uh, we're running the sensor nonstop and and sending that data out once per, per second. Uh, you're looking at about a little over 300 microamps. Okay, that's very low, actually. Yeah, surprisingly low. Yeah, we've um, 
we've done a lot of uh, a lot of work in that area to um, uh, to uh, minimize that power consumption. Then, of course, you can do duty cycling and turn the sensor on and off as needed, depending on the the use case. Um, does it require any calibration? No, um, that is <laughs> so. Um, we go to extensive lengths to to make sure that the the sensor technology out of the box works on uh, a vast majority of the population, and we about a third of our I laugh because about a third of our office looks like a a, a gym or a, a medical office, and so we in in non pandemic times we've got a pool of about a hundred volunteers who come through that lab that are testing out our latest R&D, they're testing out early prototypes of our customers' devices, and that, that test pool is, uh, is widely representative of uh, different fitness levels, different skin tones, genders, um, you, you name it, and, and doing a variety of different protocols, testing protocols with those devices to ensure that it, um, it works on a wide range of the population doing a wide range of activities. Uh, just talking about the data again, uh, your uh, MCU, your Bluetooth chip is going to uh, get these numbers from the sensor. And yep. then uh, the typical thing would be to transmit that to a smartphone. Right. So you would have to have an app on the smartphone. Yeah. Uh, what do you do about that? Uh, is that uh, the user's problem, uh, the, uh, you know, the customer's problem or do you have any? So, most of our most of our customers these days are not um, not interested in building their own apps. They're just they're pointing uh, they're 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 either um, uh, showcasing the the app agnost agnosticity if that's a word, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah. so being able to feed that data into a Endomondo or um, or Map My Fitness or any there's hundreds of apps out there that, that will take in the, the BLE heart rate profile or data from the BLE heart rate profile. Um, some of our customers are building their own apps and, um, and uh, have been successful with those apps, but it's still just feeding the data over the BLE heart rate profile. So Perfect. Um, so I'm, a, I'm an earphone builder and I don't know anything about apps. Uh, what you're yeah. saying is that these other guys, I can just uh, integrate with their apps and they have so, sort of an yeah. open and interface. You don't even need to do any integration because as long as your device support or feeds that data out over the BLE heart rate profile, um, all of the, all of the main health and fitness apps that are out there that collect heart rate data or biometric data uh, support the, the BLE heart rate profile. And on the Bluetooth chip side, in terms of software on that, let's say the design house I'm working with, I don't know anything. Uh, yeah. Can you help? How do I get the code to uh, get those numbers and transmit it to the phone? Yeah. yeah. So um, what we typically do is um, we have a, what I just showed you in this reference design is part of an evaluation kit that we offer to prospective customers who, are, who want to evaluate the technology in a, in a device they're building. So we encourage people to get one of those uh, evaluation kits and test it out for their use case. And then when they get that evaluation kit, you also get access to all of our documentation, which includes the, the communications protocol documentation, as well as a, an integration guide, and then also gets you access to our application engineers who can help, um, well, we'll do everything from review CAD and help your engineers uh, uh, integrate that sensor into the design 
in the optimal way. Um, and then also in, in terms of uh, making sure once that once the design's done, then that integration and the, the, the product development and testing process goes uh, in an iterative cycle where we will help test in our lab with uh, the volunteers that I mentioned before um, and help provide some guidance on uh, iterations or changes that would help improve the performance of the device. And we do that quite a bit with, with our customers in an iterative prototyping cycle where they'll send us some early prototypes. We run through with uh, a round of testing and provide some guidance back to, uh, to make some changes to the design or to the integration. And then uh, another round of prototyping. And then we, we iterate like that until we're happy and they're happy and yeah. the device is, is working as it should. Sounds pretty good. Uh, what have we got in terms of an MOQ and lead times? Yeah, so our standard uh, lead times are 12 weeks and they, the MOQ is 1,500 units. Okay, and uh, what about uh, getting a smaller quantity of samples for uh, you know, initial prototyping? And oh yeah, yeah, we'll do, we'll do a single sample. And in fact, the, the evaluation kits, in addition to the reference design earbud, come with a, a sample uh, of the sensor as well as a, a development board. So that development board has a sensor embedded in it or, or actually on a, on a uh, daughter board that plugs into that board uh, that you can plug into a computer and start writing firmware to uh, make the API calls off of our sensor, just as, again, to help uh, accelerate that development process. Are there any uh, design houses or uh, contractors that you work with that could help a customer implement it, given the customer doesn't know anything? They say a brand who just buys OEM products. Yeah, yeah. So we have we work with a lot of different design houses uh, around the world. And, um, and uh, some of our customers have the sophistication to do all of that in-house, but a lot of them uh, want and need the, the help of a design house uh, to, to be able to get their, their vision to, to reality. And so we'll, we'll have a, essentially a, um, uh, a three-way engagement with us, the design house, and the, the, the device maker or the brand and work directly with the design house to the extent we need to and then also work with the, the brand um, to, to get that product to market. Can we ask about the cost? Um, I can't um, talk about pricing, but it's, uh, it, it's the range of? very, very reasonable. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. And um, uh, what about uh, if, if I do want to develop myself, do I need to get some specialized equipment uh, like a development kit from you guys is enough or do I need anything else? Yeah, no. Um, in terms of the, um, the evaluation of the technology, We've, we've built these evaluation kits to make it as easy as possible to uh, evaluate the capabilities of the technology. And um, I, I did, we were talking about apps earlier. Also what we um, open up for uh, the uh, people who are getting evaluation kits is um, an app that we've built that will collect multiple data streams from multiple devices over the BLE heart rate profile. So for example, and, and do, all of that simultaneously and time aligned. So you can compare this earbud to a chest strap, to a watch or any other device that you wanna test it against simultaneously and export that data in a time aligned fashion to, to be able to uh, analyze that data 
and evaluate the performance uh, of the technology. And that's, we, we had to build that app because there, it, it just didn't exist. Uh, an app that collected uh, simultaneous uh, BLE heart rate profile streams from multiple devices. We still use this, we use this, that app every day in our test lab because uh, we're of course testing against uh, chest straps and a variety of different devices simultaneously. Fantastic, fantastic, thanks. Okay, um, so yeah, where can people find you like Global Presence, uh, your offices around the world? Yeah, so we've got uh, our headquarters here in Raleigh, North Carolina. That's where most of our people are. We've got uh, people in California here in the US and then also in Shenzhen in China. Okay, almost my neighbors, except this year we can't cross the border. Um, and, and are you guys a public or private company? We are a private company. Okay, very good. Um, anything else to ask, Simon? I think we've been yeah, quite comprehensive. Uh, one, one more thing. Um, um, over what time period did it take for Valencell to start and to get to the point that it's at now? Is it a very long development period? Is it, has it yeah. evolved from something else? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It, uh, so the company's actually been around for more than 10 years. So we, we think of ourselves as a startup and we act like a startup, but it, um, we've been around for, for quite a while now. So think back, uh, it was actually 12 years ago. So that was uh, before the word wearables existed, let alone the whole market. And, and what Valencell did was a lot of the foundational innovation and, and intellectual property development around making this methodology of PPG motion tolerant and therefore wearable. So if, you, um, if you're familiar with the, the finger clips or pulse ox clips or earlobe clips that measure vital signs in hospitals and healthcare facilities, those have, so PPG and those types of devices have been around for decades. And the challenge is just by what I mentioned earlier, the, just by the nature of the method of shining light in the body, it's extremely sensitive to motion. And with those pulse ox clips, as an example, you, if you move your hand around at all while you're taking a reading, it throws, throws the numbers off completely. So a lot of what Valencell has done is um, through a variety of different hardware and firmware and software innovations, we've made that methodology motion tolerant, even at high intensity activities um, to maintain the highest degrees of accuracy possible in the data that's coming off the sensor. And uh, and provide that to uh, wearables and hearables makers. Awesome. I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, yeah, let's maybe table this for today. Um, we'll put all the information to contact uh, Valencell and Ryan uh, on the information below for everybody. And, of course, the, the cheesy part, please hit the like and subscribe if you enjoyed this video. Uh, so, Ryan, thank you so much. Really appreciate you uh, staying a little bit late uh, at work today it's it's early here in asia but it's 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 time for dinner uh, over on the east coast there i appreciate you guys getting up early and uh, it's great conversation thanks for having me thanks okay. Ryan. see you everybody